1: Change. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, December 11th, 2009. This week, episode 149 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnag.
0: Hey, Joe. Always my pleasure.
1: Good day, Cliff. Um, We also have environmental Annie Koalicki at the controls, and the wingman, Chris Boisell, watching over his shoulder here. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Ms. Rebecca Morley, the executive director of the National Center for Healthy Housing, and Dr. Jerome Paulson for a discussion about children's health and environment. We also will have uh, actually just a very short halftime today, and then we'll go into the roundup. Since we have two guests, we're going to stick right with that. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Let's thank those sponsors. Sponsors.
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment
1: for drying water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com.
0: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n.com. Legends
1: Environmental Insurance Services, the expert's insurance for environmental consultants and contractors
0: for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right.
1: Okay, to contact the show, you call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. You can either text us messages or call in. And, of course, you can always download shows later from our website, iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show or get it from iTunes. Don't forget we also have ABH, Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC, Renewal Credits, by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website, For the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia
0: question. Thanks, Joe. You can win a cool prize by out fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to Cliff Z at ProRestoreProducts.com. Sorry that there were no correct answers to last week's trivia question. Now for the trivia question for Friday, December 4th, 2009. Name the individual credited with making this profound statement in the American Journal of Diseases in Children in 1974. Quote, until effective standards for the domestic environment are devised, it is unlikely that children will continue to be employed as biological indicators of substandard housing. Back to you, Joe. Interesting. All right.
1: Today's guests include Dr. Jerome Paulson, an associate research professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health and in the Department of Prevention and Community Health at George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. As a clinician, a researcher, and an advocate, Dr. Paulson works to enhance children's health and particularly to identify and mitigate the impact of environmental hazards on pediatric populations he is co-director of the mid-atlantic center for children's health and environment a federally funded environmental health specialty unit affiliated with the department of environment and occupational health it provides education and outreach to health professionals parents and the community dr paulson has served as a special assistant to the director of the center for disease controls national center on environmental health again focusing on children and in 2000 received a Soros Advocacy Fellowship for Physicians from the Open Society Institute. Dr. Paulson also holds a faculty appointment as an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences. He is a practicing pediatrician. He provides care to children and families in a setting that includes managed care, fee-for-service, and Medicaid patients, which gives him a first-hand experience with the complexities of reimbursement systems. And prior to joining the faculty in 1997, Dr. Paulson was the first executive director of Research America, which educates the public about the importance of medical research. We have some music for Dr. Paulson. a Okay, we've got a special show today. We've got a, a second guest, uh, Rebecca Morley. She's the Executive Director of the National Center for Healthy Housing, and uh, she leads a multidisciplinary staff in creating healthy and safe housing for children through practical proven steps. Before joining the National Center for Healthy Housing in 2002, Ms. Morley was a senior associate with ICF Consulting in Washington, D.C., where she advised clients, including the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and Housing and Urban Development on the development of lead poisoning prevention and healthy home programs. Prior to that, Ms. Morley worked with HUD in a variety of posts, including the Office of the Secretary, the Office of Public Affairs, and the Office of Healthy Homes and Lead Hazard Control. I think we've got a little uh, intro clip for Rebecca. guests on the line here Mm -hmm. hello Rebecca do we have you first
2: uh yeah I'm here we've got you
1: all right excellent welcome to the show and uh thanks for joining us and Dr. Paulson let's check and make sure we've still got you on the line here
3: I'm here thanks very much
1: excellent thank you okay well let's let's start with Rebecca we've talked before about the National Center for Healthy Housing but uh maybe you could tell us in your own words what what does your organization do
2: I'd be happy to. So, we were founded back in the early 90s as the National Center for Lead Safe Housing. And our role was to come up with standards, guidelines, uh, assist with the regulatory development process for lead based paint um, hazards and lead poisoning prevention. And uh, about, some, I don't know, about 10 years ago now, uh, back in about 2000, or I'm sorry, in 1999, we expanded our mission to address other hazards in the home environment. Um, What we found is that when folks were going in to deal with lead-based paint, they were noticing things like mold, pests, um, structural problems, safety hazards. And so to just deal with one issue categorically while ignoring the others just didn't seem to make a lot of sense from both an efficiency standpoint or a public health standpoint. And so today, our primary mission is to protect children, especially children from low-income communities, uh, from environmental health and safety hazards in the home. And we do this through research, policy advocacy, and then training.
0: How does your organization um, funded?
2: We have. A- pretty diversified funding base of the federal government, of course, uh, HUD, CDC, EPA, so that's Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Environmental Protection Agency. Also, funding from private donors uh, like the Home Depot Foundation, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cresty Foundation, uh, individual donors, and our board members, of course.
1: You, you must know we have the acronym police here. You caught that pretty quick, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a little siren we use from time to time if people go into too many acronyms. One more for you, and then we'll go back to uh, Dr. Paulson. Since you started at uh, the National Center in 2002, what, what's what been the most important, practical, and proven step that your group has been able to take to help ensure children are living in, in healthier environments?
2: Mm. It's actually a a system change that I think probably we're most excited about. As I mentioned before, people would address hazards in the home categorically, so lead-based paint, asbestos, mold, radon. You go down the list, and it feels very overwhelming. It's also not the best way to approach it from a building science standpoint because many of these hazards are interrelated. So I think one of the biggest innovations since joining here in 2002 has been the movement from those categorical approaches to our seven principles of healthy homes. And this was through the good work of many of our partners and consultants, so certainly not just our own, but coming up with the seven principles, which are to keep homes dry, clean, pest-free, ventilated, contaminant-free, safe, and maintained, Um, helps us to rethink the way we approach hazards in the home, both in the assessment stage and in the intervention stage or the upgrade stage.
1: I've got some follow-offs for that later, but let's go to Cliff and uh, sure. ask a question for Dr. Paulson.
0: Sure. Uh, doctor, in your medical practice, what environmental health issues affecting children create the greatest problems?
3: Unfor- <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, um, we still see uh, some children with elevated blood lead levels. Um, and then the second most common um thing that we see our kids with asthma um, and then the asthma is uh, exacerbated by um, environmental issues such as uh uh Cockroaches or other kinds of vermin or um uh indoor tobacco smoke, environmental tobacco smoke, sometimes um outdoor pollution as well in terms of um we'll you know a day or two after uh a uh, code orange or code red day we'll see um more kids in the office with acute episodes of wheezing and and more kids getting admitted to the hospital.
1: I've noticed in in looking at your uh, bio that you've had a a good background in environmental issues, environmental health. Um, Is this common during the training of physicians and nurses that they get this type of environmental health background?
3: No, it's not. Um, Among others, the Institute of Medicine has issued probably four or five reports over the last 20, 25 years calling for increased education of um, physicians and nurses um, in environmental and also occupational health.
1: What about with respect to the pediatric physicians? Are they um, also lacking in this area? Pediatric term lacking, but you know, not getting as much training as we would like. I guess
3: right. Pediatricians who train in big cities with old housing will learn something about lead poisoning, Um, but that's usually the extent of it, and they really don't learn anything about any of the other. Um, environmental health hazards, whether they relate to, um, you know, indoor air pollution, exposure to toxic substances, or or really anything else.
1: Now, when we were preparing for the show, you introduced me to, um, first, a term I wasn't familiar with, which is Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit. I went and I checked out the website, and we're going to post that on our homepage when we're done for listeners. Seems like a fantastic resource for just anyone, you know, physicians, uh, uh, people in the general public, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this is and and explain to the listeners uh, what they can find there?
3: Sure. Um, pediatric environmental health specialty units are a resource, quite literally, for anybody and everybody in the community. So, um, any of your listeners um, in the uh, who have questions specifically about environmental health and kids can contact a, a pediatric environmental health specialty unit. There are ten units in the United States, one in each of um, EPA's ten regions. The units are funded by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry and the EPA. Um, they are all based at academic um, medical centers. And all of the units have two fundamental um, missions. One. Is to educate primarily health professionals, but um, we also do education of um, anybody else who you know wants us to do that um, about issues related to children's health and the environment. And then the second mission is to serve as a consultant to anybody in the community. Parents can call us. Indoor air quality professionals can call us. School teachers can call us. Um, public health officials, docs, nurses. Each of the units has a toll-free number that works within um, their region, and each of the units has uh, an email address. And so anybody who's got any question that they either know relates to the chil- children, the health of a child or children and an environmental exposure or they think may um, Uh, link uh, some kind of environmental issue with a health issue. Um, They can call the Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit and our mission is to provide them with the best science-based answer that we possibly can.
1: I noticed you also have quite a few excellent studies posted on the site. Is it kind of a clearinghouse for that or is it becoming that? I'm not sure.
3: Um, It is becoming a clearinghouse. All of the... The units um, cooperate and collaborate um, so that if there's something that uh, one of them has more expertise in, um, you know, then the rest of us will sometimes call them for advice, and we try and share uh, materials that um, that we have created as a group. We have created um, some materials sort of for national distribution. Uh, we after the wildfires in California a couple of years ago. you know, the question came up about uh, what's the impact of wildfires on the kids, and when can the kids go back into um, those areas where the wildfires um, are going on, ongoing or or have um, been overcome. And so we tried to put some information together, and the same thing in terms of returning to homes in the Katrina and Rita areas. Um, you know, what uh, what criteria should be used for letting kids back into the homes there that might have been contaminated with mold or the schools um, that might have been contaminated with mold after Katrina and Rita.
1: It looks like a tremendous resource. You've just added, though, to my uh, backlog of reading I've got to do, but thank you. It looks like some good stuff. Cliff, let me move Um, on. You can talk to Rebecca.
0: Sure. sure. Rebecca, um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that your organization does participate in research. Can you just comment to our listeners on some of the types of research your group participates in.
2: Absolutely. One of our key responsibilities in the Healthy Homes Movement is to figure out what works. What things can you do to a home that will result in demonstrable improvements in health? And so our uh, demonstration projects run the gamut. We've looked at uh, integrated pest management and the, in its effectiveness. We've looked at injury prevention. We've looked at asthma, uh, interventions. One of our most recent, recent studies that we just completed this year is on green building and the impact of meeting the, uh, green building criteria developed by enterprise community partners called green communities and its impacts on both health and the environment. So we did resident surveys, uh, before they moved into their, renovated green buildings and then afterwards we did some environmental sampling for vocs and for radon um took moisture measurements and uh again the whole idea here is to figure out what are the practical things that you can do to a home that will actually make a difference um for the health of of the families that live there
1: is is that research available on the website
2: we, I believe the report is up, the study is being submitted for publication, so the full findings are not yet available, but will be um, in the coming year. Um, certainly, and you can visit nchh.org and find information about the Minnesota Green Communities Project, if you want to find out more.
1: Minnesota Greens Community, okay. Now, the other question we have, there was a people used to move to Arizona like for their health reasons, and apparently you've done some studies about it. What, what can you tell our listeners about what you find when you participated in a study of Arizona homes?
2: We joined up with the Phoenix Children's Hospital in the city of Phoenix to carry out a demonstration project over the course of about three years. We enrolled 67 families from Phoenix and uh, did baseline surveys of their home. This was primarily an injury prevention um, intervention, um, and we were thrilled that at the end of the intervention, 96% reported improvements in their health. But just to have a sense at baseline, what we found, uh, we found dust in carpets, bedding, problems with the heating and cooling systems, poor general housekeeping, musty smells, cockroach infestations. These were found in somewhere between 52 and 69% of the homes at baseline. And as I mentioned at the conclusion of the study, 96% of families reported that their, the health of their children with asthma had improved and then we also saw a significant drop in the injury hazards in the home. So we were looking at two things really, injury problems as well as asthma issues.
0: Rebecca, where do you see the most potential for quickly improving indoor environments for children in schools and homes and why?
2: I think the key is to figure out how do we mainstream these principles. So not to develop additional new programs, but rather look at the existing programs that we have out there and how are what are the strings that are going out there already. So just as an example, there's lots of money that goes into affordable housing. How do we make sure that every dollar that's spent uh, not only uh, addresses the affordable housing needs, but ensures that people are getting into safe and healthy housing. Um, likewise for schools, um, what dollars are going in either for capital needs or for maintenance? How do we make sure that maintenance dollars are not being spent on um, hazardous cleaning uh, products or spraying for pests just simply changing practice and then um, I, th- I always think the best way to change practice is to follow the money figure out who's funding funding these things and then uh, begin a conversation about shifting practice
1: okay Dr. Paulson let's go right. back to uh, your thoughts on a few things one I, I want to get your thoughts on dampness and or mold and, and the potential health effects in children Um, Is the mold issue overblown, in your opinion, by the media, or is it something that um, we really need to pay closer attention to?
3: I think that um, we do need to pay attention to damp buildings, and um, some damp buildings do have mold problems. Um, And those mold problems can affect the health of children and adults. I think that there are aspects of the mold problem um, that are overblown, people um, may get more concerned than they really need to about relatively small amounts of mold. Um, They tend to focus on, um, well, what type of mold is it, when in reality um, we don't know that any one particular kind of mold is um, more problematic than any other kind of mold. And um, occasionally they go overboard um, uh, in terms of trying to clean it up with using um, high concentration bleach solutions and things like that, which in and of themselves can can cause indoor air quality problems. So I think that um, if in their home or um, in a school setting um, people smell or see mold, then it's there. And that's probably the extent of the, quote, diagnostic evaluation, unquote, that um, needs to be done. And then the... so then in terms of remediation, the first issue is if there's ongoing um, moisture uh, intrusion, how to get rid of that? Is there a leaky pipe? Is there a downspout that every time it rains um, brings water up against the foundation of the school and then it, it migrates into the school, or is there a, an air conditioner um, that's uh, where the condensate is leaking into the home or the school. So you've got to stop the, the moisture incursion, first of all. Then you can go in and um, uh, clean up the situation. Por- porous surfaces, carpets, uh, wallboard, things like that, really can't be cleaned. They need to be discarded and, and replaced. But non-porous surfaces like a... Uh, a toilet uh, or a, a piece of stainless steel or something along those lines um, can be cleaned often with um, uh, soap and water is uh, really about all that's that's necessary. Um, And then, um, you know, the area can be repaired and and reoccupied. Sometimes um, if it's a basement where you can't totally prevent water incursion, you have to set up a dehumidification system so that the water is removed from the air and and taken outside. Um, I think parents uh, get scared about things like, quote, black mold, unquote, and Again, I I don't think there's any real information out there to suggest that one kind of mold is more risky than another.
0: Um, I've got a. looking back historically, if we kind of look in this historic rearview mirror, you know, 25 years ago, asbestos was a huge issue. Everyone was worried about asbestos. We would see it every night on television. Uh, Asbestos was kind of pushed out of the way by lead. And I think in many ways, lead was pushed out of the way by mold. And if you had the opportunity to refocus, would you refocus back on lead? Um, I would focus
3: on um, healthy buildings, be it schools or homes, since those are the two primary things that we're talking about. And looking at the issue holistically um, to say, you know, if we're concerned about this building, What are the issues for this building, and how can we approach, uh, how can we assess the building to, in fact, determine whether there are water incursion issues, lead issues, mold issues? Because, you know, if there's a water incursion issue and it's a building built before 1951 when lead-based paint was very common, then, well, there may be a mold issue, but we know that um, damp walls, make the paint deteriorate, and that's going to exacerbate the the potential for uh, lead paint exposure in that setting. Um, you know, is this building um, on a slab, and is it in in the part of a country, or is there a basement, and is it in part of the country where radon may be an issue? Well, if, if you're going to go in there and, and do some assessment of uh, indoor air quality, the um, incremental cost of of checking for radon and then, uh, if needs be, doing radon remediation um, is much less when you take a whole building approach than if you um, if you uh, just go and do a radon assessment and then, for some reason or another, have to come back six months later and do some other kind of assessment and remediation.
1: I think. Maybe Rebecca and her group would refer to that as kind of the one-touch thing, where, where someone's trained to go in and that one person can handle all of these things. Uh, Rebecca, would you care to comment on that?
2: I agree, and, uh, you know, I, I want to come back to this issue of one building problem popping up, it seems like, each decade. Um, there's a broader issue there, which is why do we wait until we put these building materials into um, in place until we actually figure out whether they're a problem, um, that we really need to work on our front-end policymaking. Um, you know, with TOSCA reform, TOSCA is the Toxic Substances and Control Act. It uh, hasn't been modernized in decades. It uh, generally sets out the authority for EPA to review and regulate chemicals. And uh, one of the things that we're really going to be advocating for is not to just look at chemicals alone, but also building materials, perhaps adding a new title to TOSCA that would look at building materials. So we don't have these issues of formaldehyde and uh, Chinese drywall and lead-based paint and asbestos just continue to uh, wreak havoc in our housing market. Certainly the construction industry doesn't want to have to deal with these things after the fact, and, and public health officials don't either. So that's just kind of a sidebar on kind of where things should be going on the regulation of of chemicals and and chemicals that are in building materials. In in terms of one-touch, absolutely. If you've got a person going in to do an energy retrofit or an energy audit, um, why not have them assess uh, moisture issues, uh, potential combustion issues, uh, ventilation problems? In fact, as part of a do-no-harm strategy, they should be looking at those things anyway.
1: I'm curious, with respect to one-touch, it's got to be difficult, for you and for i know you have um training providers that partner with nchh around the country that provide the um, healthy homes assessment i believe it is program i've always been curious i haven't been there yet but i promise i will be how do you handle the issue with respect to lead paint and asbestos when it's so highly regulated that really you know that you have to be licensed to do much. I mean, can you can you just make some kind of general recommendation? Is that how you teach people to handle that?
2: Well, I think with the new EPA regulation on lead that will regulate renovation, repair, and painting work, we're moving in the direction of mainstreaming lead poisoning prevention so that uh, any person can be trained to do lead-safe work practices when they're disturbing lead-based paint. Um, so I guess moving away from the model of either you have a lead bateman professional come in or you do nothing. That, that's not a great option for most families. We want to have uh, other folks that are trained to do the work that they're doing anyway safely. Um, so. But I will say that for things that are heavily regulated, instead of maybe training one person to do everything, what we might need is a more sophisticated referral network. So, for instance, if someone came in to do an energy audit in a home and they found uh, that this was an older home with a lot of peeling paint, um, they would certainly want to recommend that the contractors that do the work follow lead-safe work practices, but they may also want to recommend to the family or to the program that's managing the project that they uh, hire a, a consultant to come in and do a full lead-based paint risk assessment or a lead paint inspection so uh, again just making sure that there's better links even at the local level between these programs
1: okay you've hit an issue that's near and dear to my heart let me just add on to that um, that energy audit I and Dr. Paulson if you can jump in on this too I'm a little concerned when we do an energy audit that we depressurize a home to negative 50 pascals approximately which is pretty serious if you put your hand uh, on the uh uh sockets the outlets for the lights you can feel the 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 air being pulled through there Uh, any concern that um if children are in that home or going to be re-entering that home soon that they could be disturbing asthma triggers um i think
3: you know hypothetically um, you raise an interesting issue certainly to the extent that um, cockroach and um and uh, mouse standers might be uh behind the walls and you suck them out into the living space uh during that procedure um, i i can see um, where the concern might come from um, having said that i'm i'm certainly not aware of any data uh to suggest that um that has occurred or or that, that um is a a realistic um uh situation to be worried about. It's a researchable situation. Um I don't know if Rebecca knows of any research that's looked at sort of before and after um antigen levels um measuring cockroach antigen or or uh rat uh mouse antigen in the dust or just looking at you know kids coming back into the house and whether those who uh have preexisting asthma have more um attacks in the couple of days after after the um the energy audit than before.
2: Well, I think it is a it is an excellent research question. I have not seen any studies published on this subject specifically. We did do a study a few years back looking at the impact of weatherization on dust lead levels, and we looked at that specifically, which is whether um, maybe dust um, being moved around during the course of the weatherization work might create a problem. For instance, even during the blower door test, um, when you're uh, drilling holes in the baseboards to add insulation, did that create uh, lead hazards? So uh, that study is actually online on our website and Chh.org. Um, it did suggest that you could create some dust lead hazards. So I suppose that there is a reason to believe that it could create other hazards. Um, but you know, without definitive research, it's hard to say for certain. Um, and I would agree with Dr. Paulson that something that's certainly researchable.
1: I'll keep pushing from
0: my end to get some research done on that. Cliff, go ahead. I got a toss up question I'll just throw (laughs) out there to both of you. And uh, what other health issues do you think should be getting more attention in the media and in other sources that aren't getting it now?
2: This is Rebecca and I guess one of the things, we did a survey not too long ago to find out from families what they know about hazards in the home. Um, And we have been primarily focused on environmental health for a very long time and oftentimes overlook injury hazards. And it turns out that families do as well. Um, Only 18% of people that had young children in the home reported using baby safety devices. So, stair gates, um, window guards, uh, locks on cabinets. So, I think injury prevention is oftentimes overlooked, and that we need to redouble our efforts to make sure people know about uh, preventable home injuries.
3: I'll certainly um, second that notion, I think both in the home and outside the home. Um, injuries are the leading cause of death in children over the age of one, and um, motor vehicle injuries are the leading subcategory of um, of injury-related death. So in spite of the fact that many people um, in the United States To use car seats for example um, there's still a lot of folks who don't number one number two um, among those people who use car seats there's a high percentage of folks who do not actually install them correctly and so they may not give the full measure of protection in the event of a a collision or some other kind of um, uh, uh, hazardous event Um, I think pedestrian injuries continue to be a problem. We don't do a very good job of separating um, the kids from the motor vehicles. Um, And so kids continue to to get hit by motor vehicles. And that's that's a a very uneven encounter, obviously, and the kids come out much the worse for wear.
1: Okay, let's, we've got to take a short break here just to uh, thank our
0: sponsors, and we'll be right back.
1: Let's uh, thank
0: those sponsors real quick. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. And now, thanks to our advertisers.
1: Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit
0: them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore, for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment, rec- remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And of course, our primary sponsors Indoor Environment Connections,
1: the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information
0: available at ieconnections.com. Dry's Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Um, Rebecca, uh, what's the current EPA lead dust standard, and does your organization consider it to be reasonable?
2: The EPA standards for dust lead hazards—is that the yes, question? Yes. Yeah, we actually completed a study in. Uh, uh, 2009 that looked at the adequacy of EPA standards for lead on uh, sills and floors and troughs and we found that they were not protective enough um, and that they would have to be substantially reduced in order to protect just 95% of kids at the current CDC blood, blood level which is 10 micrograms per deciliter and of course uh, it's worth noting that uh, many studies have shown that there is no threshold uh, for safe exposure to lead and so that 10 may not be um, the best number or the number that we should be aiming for. But in any case, um, in a study that we published in March 2009, we found that the floor dust standard is actually four times what it should be to protect at least 95% of kids from having a blood lead above 10. Um, and so we've recommended actually reducing the floor lead from 40 to 10 micrograms per square foot or less, and then also lowering the window sill dust lead lead hazard standards from 250 micrograms per square foot, which is what it is currently, to 100 micrograms per square foot. Let me
1: uh, follow up with Dr. Paulson. I, I, You know, I've dealt with lead since uh, the mid-80s, late-80s, I guess, and my impression is that We've been doing a pretty good job and that uh, blood leads and children are coming down fairly significantly, but um I get the impression we're not quite where you would like us to be yet. Could you comment on where we are with respect to twenty years ago and where you'd like to see us be?
3: We have done a, a really good job. Um of lowering the average blood lead level among children um, in the United States. If you go back to oh, the, the mid-70s, um, the um, you know, sort of uh, average blood lead level of kids between about one and six years of age in the United States was somewhere close to 15 micrograms per deciliter, and now it's actually less than 2 and so that's um that is a, a market improvement. A lot of that comes from um getting lead out of gasoline. Um some of that comes from um homes that had lead paint finally um, being removed from the marketplace and, and so kids are no longer exposed. But um, as Ms. Morley said, there's there's no known threshold for lead. And while I recognize we're never going to get all lead out of the environment, I think where we need to go um, moving forward is to stop focusing on the kids and stop screening kids for elevated blood levels and really focus on um, where the kids live and go particularly to preschool or, or childcare and make sure that those buildings are screened so that the children do not get exposed. If the buildings have lead paint, make sure that the lead paint um, is is rendered lead safe. Um, and make sure that the building is maintained in an appropriate way and rechecked um, with a reasonable frequency to to ensure that it remains um, lead safe. By screening kids, um, you can only identify them once they've been exposed. And if there's going to be damage to those kids, then you've identified them after the damage has been done and the damage is irremediable. Um, We are basically, by screening kids, using kids to identify um, homes or school settings, primarily preschools and and, um, child care settings, that really are not fit for human habitation. And that seems to me to be um, immoral, to use kids in that way. Um, So we really need to switch um the thinking of the cities and counties and um other entities that set up the the lead screening programs um to to the notion of screening buildings and i know the the c a c is moving in that direction in in terms of its recommendations um and that some cities um are moving that way in in terms of their laws but but we aren't we aren't there yet.
1: Let me ask a quick follow-up to that, and then I have one for Rebecca on uh, how we can control the the hazards during during renovation. But I I want to quickly ask. Um, I recall back in the I guess the '90s uh, when Dr. Needleman here from the University of Pittsburgh was under quite a bit of uh, I don't know if it was scrutiny or pressure or whatever because of his research that indicated you know ten micrograms per deciliter or less was causing adverse health problems within children. Can you give me an idea of where the current research is, what levels we're at, and and more specifically, what are the health effects that these low blood lead levels can cause?
3: All of the research that's come out um, in the last 20 years has basically served to confirm um, the groundbreaking work that uh, Dr. Needleman did um it is now clearer than it was before that um these low blood lead levels levels of 15 levels of 7 levels of 3 um are associated with um adverse outcomes um the kids when you look at kids as a group kids with more exposure to lead will have lower IQs a higher frequency of behavior problems, learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder. When you follow those kids into adolescence and young adulthood, more of them will have significant behavior problems to the extent of ending them up in the court system and in jail. So there does not seem to be a level below which exposure to lead is safe. And again, that gets back to what I said a few minutes ago. We can't really use kids as a means of identifying that there's a lead problem in the place they live or the place they go to school. We need to screen the buildings and um, make the buildings lead safe and then let the kids in.
0: You know, could we change subjects? Uh, Let's move to formaldehyde. Rebecca, what are some of the sources of formaldehyde emissions in housing and what recommendations does your organization have to reduce them?
2: Well, formaldehyde can come from a range of things in the home, uh, pressed wood, cabinetry, carpets, curtains, um, tobacco smoke. Um, and so and even the burning of wood can release formaldehyde. So there's lots of sources and then, of course, obviously lots of ways that you can uh, prevent and control formaldehyde. Such as, well, as a couple of examples, um, not letting anyone smoke in your home. If you do heat with wood, keep the stove in good repair, since uh, burning wood, as I mentioned, can release formaldehyde. Um, if you buy furnitures or cabinets made of particle board or medium density fiberboard, look for ones that are either plastic laminated or coated on all sides. Um, I- ideally, you'll look for. Uh, Wood products that have no urea formaldehyde added or low are advertised and certified as low formaldehyde. Um, Another option is to insist on engineered wood cabinetry made, like I said, with non-formaldehyde glues and finishes for painting. There are tons of low and no VOC options these days. Another thing to think about is that heat and humidity can cause faster release of formaldehyde, so it's important to address those issues in your home and to keep it well-vented. Other ideas are just washing your permanent press clothing and sheets before you use them and airing out permanent press drapes before hanging them. And finally, of course, not running vehicles, lawnmowers, or any of the like in attached garages or workshops near the house or the entrance.
1: Rebecca I want to follow up on on that to some degree but also on a a comment you made earlier and it ties into this whole thing you know asbestos was a big thing then lead was a big thing and, and mold and and can't we keep these things out of the home in the first place now we've got the green building movement and we're seeing a lot of new products coming out is NCHH working with any other groups to try and help make sure that these new products aren't going to be the next formaldehyde or the next uh, asbestos or whatever the case may be.
2: Well, it's a great question. We're quite busy right now working on the existing products. so for instance, uh, we we're, we're joined up with Sierra Club and others and addressing formaldehyde. there's a um, bill that is moving very swiftly through the Congress that would adopt federal requirements around formaldehyde that look very much like the California standards and that one that bill has been sponsored by uh, Senator Klobuchar. Uh, from Minnesota. So um, that's our first priority is dealing with some of the very nasty chemicals that we know about um, and that are already uh, going into homes and to prevent that from happening. Um, But it's it's an excellent question and an absolute need to figure out what all these substitutes are and uh, whether they also raise potential issues so our role in that as i mentioned before will be to focus on tosca reform as an opportunity to address um new building materials um we also follow carefully some of these certification program um, programs that are already out there um i don't know that we will launch our own credentialing program for products or certification programs, but many do already exist. You've got Green Seals and Carpet uh, and Rug Institute and others. And uh, we have been monitoring those programs and uh, take uh, a lot of the information from them as we are advising our green our friends in the green building movement.
3: If I can weigh in a little bit on that as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, the notion that... Um Somebody um, be it um, Ms. Morley's organization or anybody else, would have to test these mark these materials once they're out on the market, I think is wrongheaded. Um, it's the responsibility of the manufacturer to market products that they know and have looked at they know to be safe. They've done that testing before they put them on the market. They're the ones who stand to profit if it's the responsibility of a non-governmental organization or even if it's the responsibility of the EPA or some other federal organization to do that testing after it's marketed, then that shifts the cost of, of the testing. That's not fair. Um, and um, it's a system that's guaranteed to um, increase the exposure. Why should any company um, be allowed to put anything out in the marketplace that's hazardous to human health? Why don't they have to test before they market it?
1: Well, that's a a great comment. Now, I've got a couple text questions, and I'm not sure if you can answer them or not. These have come in from listeners, actually, uh, guest five here. And and maybe, Rebecca, you will know. Uh, we were talking earlier about air, fil- air infiltration, exposures, et cetera, and um, the comment was, isn't the National Institutes for Science and Technology pouring money into the research topic, into this research topic using CONTAM, and I don't know what C-O-N-T-A-M stands for. Maybe the listener can help me. Uh, Rebecca, are you familiar with that at all?
2: I'm I'm not. I'm sorry that I, I'm not sure. I guess he's referring to NIST, and it sounds like they have a contract out maybe to look at the potential hazards of infiltration, um, yeah, but I don't know anything about the particulars of the study.
1: Okay. And then he's got another comment here. I'll just throw him out. We'll see what we got. Uh if formaldehyde, a known carcinogen, appears at all on the radar screen, why, is, why doesn't the Consumer Product Safety Commission stringently ban bamboo products treated with it?
2: I guess one question would be whether CPSC has the clear legislative authority to ban it. Um, you know, it took years to get CPSC to ban lead-based paint, Um and uh it was i think congress actually required them to ban it in the early 70s and it wasn't until 78 that it was eventually banned um oftentimes cpsc will focus on uh Risks, death risks, for instance, as opposed to things that can cause chronic health problems, and unfortunately, CPSC also shares its responsibility for regulating some of these materials with EPA, and so that share, you know, the saying, when when no one's in charge, no one's in charge. So I think we also see a little bit of that going on. It's a it, it's a fine question. It's a, it's a serious health concern. Formaldehyde is. Um, and I think it's something that that's why the Hill is focusing on it is that no one agency seems to be taking it on with a level of seriousness that it deserves.
1: Okay. We're going to go to what we call our roundup right now where we go back around and make sure everybody gets a chance to uh, ask one more question and we give you a chance to add anything we may have missed.
3: Move on, hit him up, hit him up. Move them on, move on, hit up.
1: All right, we got the roundup here. I was—I've I, got another text question. I'm trying to make sense of up here. But uh, before we do that, I, I wanted to make sure we gave Dr. Paulson a, a chance to talk a little bit about radon. What, what are your thoughts on radon as a public health issue? Is it overblown, or, or does it—you uh, know—does it not get enough attention?
3: I think um, radon doesn't get enough attention. It's second to tobacco smoke, uh, the second leading cause of lung cancer in the United States. Um, But because it's odorless, colorless, tasteless, no one has any way of knowing that it's in their home um, unless they test for it and um, education about radon testing has not been very extensive to date. I think that um, for anybody um wherever they live they ought to be able to check with um you know the city or county about um uh, whether radon is a problem in that particular geographic area and then rate on testing in terms of purchasing a, a detector at a hardware store and installing it in the basement for 30 days and mailing it in, um, is a low-cost, um, easy um, thing to do. And I think it's particularly important um, for parents who are using the basement as a playroom, or maybe um, contemplating uh, making a bedroom um, down in the basement, or if, again, if the house is on a slab there is basement then obviously there there are uh, likely to be um, play areas or bedrooms um, at ground level and, and so it's important to test and the remediation while a little cumbersome and a little uh, expensive all in all isn't, isn't a terrible thing. Okay Cliff
0: I'm gonna actually uh, I guess Dr. Paulson you, you were talking about all this testing that you'd like to see done on building products before they're incorporated Uh, in homes. And I think one of the challenges is, is when is there enough testing? You know, what if this happened? And, you know, what about that? And I I guess, with someone with your training, the the question that Dieter would ask you is, are you aware of a substance that isn't hazardous to human health that could be incorporated into a building product?
3: Well, um, I think you need to look not only at hazard, um, but you need to look at exposure. I mean, again, we're, take lead paint. While I, I wouldn't recommend that we go back to allowing the use of lead paint in homes, um, we know that lead paint um, uh, you know can be rendered much less hazardous if it's already on the wall and, and you've got a way of... Of containing it, so had we tried to manage the, the lead-based paint problem prospectively, um, there are a lot, uh, there were at that time, and Lord knows there are now, a lot of alternatives. So that doesn't mean you never use lead anywhere in the home. Maybe, you know, in the depths of an electrical system where there's no alternative. Um, You have some small amount of lead and you know that it's extremely unlikely for there actually to be exposure to the hazard, whereas on a wall, you want to use um, a a wall covering that contains essentially no lead um, because you know there's a high likelihood of exposure as as that surface deteriorates over time so um it, it's it's not while while hazard is one of the things that has to be determined it is it should not be the only um deciding factor. Um, you know uh, take another example um what what I think you really have to look at is what's the function that somebody is trying to fulfill with the with a product. And then the question comes as to what's the safest thing that can be used. Um, an example I heard recently doesn't relate specifically to the home, but for example, if you're cutting metal, do you use an organic cutting fluid, or perhaps do you use water? Um, and for the um, for the workers, it's clearly a lot safer where water can function as a cutting fluid to use that. Now, you don't want to discharge it into the local stream, but you've markedly decreased the workers' exposure to volatile organic compounds.
1: Okay, and, and I just want to make sure that um, our, our guest know Dieter, is Dr. Dietrich Wow, who's normally with us on the show. He's right. our technical director, but he's, in, uh, he's on a beach in Jamaica somewhere this week. so uh, And I wanted to also give Rebecca a chance to, would you like to weigh in on the same question or do you, uh, is there anything else that you would like to add maybe that we missed?
2: Well, I guess uh, since we've got just a few minutes left here and we are in the midst of the holiday season, I wanted to give people a recommendation or suggestion for holiday gifts, which I've done on several occasions and are very well-received. And it's a healthy home uh, gift basket, so a basket that includes a radon test kit, a CO alarm, a smoke alarm. you could certainly print out the Healthy Homes Maintenance Checklist from our website and include that, um, baby safety items if they have young children. And um, this makes it, I think it makes a wonderful um, gift, especially during the holiday season where people are spending more time in their homes. Um, it's getting a little colder, so people are also inside more. Um, and, it, and it's uh, both, uh, I think, uh, very practical, and it shows that you really have your uh, family or friends' best interest at heart. I like that.
1: I I think Cliff's Cliff's nodding in approval. And Dr. Paulson, before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add?
3: I just want to reemphasize that. Uh, any of your listeners and and any of their clients or contacts or family members, for that matter, um, who have a question related to um, a kid and an environmental exposure of any sort, um, call your regional pediatric environmental health special unit. You can go to www.pe.org hsu.net, and find the contact information for all of the pediatric environmental health specialty units around the country. And for those folks who are in Region 3, which is the region my unit serves, happy to help you with anything. Well, we want to uh, thank both
1: of our guests. We really appreciate them taking time out to spend uh, an hour talking to our listeners and uh, educating us. Ms. Rebecca Morley, the Executive Director of the National Center for Healthy Housing, and Dr. Jerome Paulson. We appreciate uh, both of them joining us this week on IAQ Radio. Before we go, uh, we want to let the listeners know that next week, uh, the Z-Man and I are going to do a little year-in-review program here. We're going to go back through the last year. We've got some clips and outtakes, takes and uh, we'll have a little fun with that. And most importantly, before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, environmental Annie Koalicki at the controls, the wingman, Chris Boyzel. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.